realized earlier that I didn't introduce myself. My name is Josh uh, Stiginga. I'm your host tonight uh, as we move forward. <clears throat> um, long story short, I, I grew up here in the uh, Trinity area, which is not very far down the road um, on a little tobacco farm. We didn't own the farm, but we lived on the farm. Um, <clears throat> I, I struggled with depression quite a bit for most of my childhood and teenage years. Um, as a young adult, I had a suicide attempt that was obviously not successful. Um, <clears throat> all of those things uh, led to um, a suicide prevention ministry where I worked in uh, Guilford County Schools teaching uh, students uh, how to help their friends who uh, would confess to having suicidal thoughts, um, <clears throat> which led to a bunch of other things uh, and a lot of other career paths. And in, in 2020, uh, my wife and I opened up our own uh, counseling practice <clears throat> in February of 2020. Uh, since then, uh, we've seen about 1,000 clients, so we've been very busy uh, in the past three years. Um, and it's, it's kind of like having church with just one other person is the best way that I can uh, explain it. Uh, so the name of that is To Bind the Broken, and we work, uh, we literally work uh, off of faith. Uh, if someone decides to give a donation for our services, uh, that's how we live. <clears throat> uh, and so North Carolina Revival is, is, is a, uh, a community, a, a communal version, an offspring uh, of To Bind the Broken, because obviously we work one-on-one, -on -one, obviously there's some confidentiality rules there. <laughs> but one thing I started to notice over the past three years is how absent people were uh, for community. And, and I would say, do you not have anybody to, like, encourage you? And they'd say, no. I'd be astounded. And so I knew that at some point we would uh, work our way into something more uh, communal. Uh, and, and so we've been doing a couple things, and this is one of our larger events, uh, just to get people uh, together. So I hope that you're enjoying yourself uh, so far. Uh, <clears throat> I'm just really, I, I feel like that we, st we still haven't necessarily got off the ground yet. And the love of the Father is waiting to be poured out on us. Um, if you came here looking for some fancy transitions, you might just want to leave now. <laughs> if I'm standing here looking at you and not saying anything, I'm really just listening to the Lord Amen. to see what he says. Does that make sense? Yes. Is that okay? Yes. <clears throat> I feel like the Lord wants to release um, some more in the terms of a prophetic word. Uh, you, sir, in the yellow shirt. What's your name? Bryson. Can you stand? I'm not going to embarrass you or anything. Um, I saw you earlier crossing the street um, when we were having dinner, and I, the Lord pointed you out immediately. You have something on you, uh, and it's called leadership. And there's a fire. There's a fire in you, and um, something or someone or some people have tried to put the fire out. But you're not meant to be a... Um, a listener of other people's opinions. There's only one voice in you. It's the voice of the Lord, and that's the voice that you need to be listening to because you need to be leading people. Uh, so thank you. 
Uh, you, sir, with the glasses and the charcoal hoodie. Yes, you. What's your name? Louis. Louis. Thank you. Um, you can stay standing. Yeah. Yeah. Are you a father? Yes. Uh, do you have older children? Yeah. Uh, are they out of your house? Yeah. You're, you're still a father. There are um, young men in your life. And you need to be a father to them. You're obviously still a father to your children, but uh, so many of us have been orphaned, orphaned as men. Listen, in the, in the Civil War, we lost over half a million men. And it's 2023, we've not recovered. This is the most fatherless generation that we've seen, and we need fathers. And uh, I just want you to receive that word and... Uh, Become an expert in being a father to men around you who are younger. Thank you. Do you feel that that was accurate? How do you feel about that? Okay. I never ask. The first time I prayed over someone, it was in Target for their back, and I just ran away after I prayed for them. I didn't even ask if they felt better. I was so nervous. Good. Um, you, ma'am, in the back with the glasses, and the, you're on the very last row. Yep, you. <laughs> What's your name? Lee? All right. So, Lee, somebody, uh, or maybe some people, um, Somebody has broken your heart. And the Lord wants to come in, and I see him um, picking up the pieces of your heart. And that heart is, uh, I see it like forming uh, into like a, a little girl, uh, and, and she needs comfort uh, and care. And the, and the Lord wants to give that to you. He wants to, he wants to heal any brokenness uh, that is inside you. Um, and so I just pray that. I just bless you with that. Thank you. Very good. All right. I'm, I'm just going to stop there. I'm not getting anything else right now. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, usher people. Where are you guys at? Boom, boom, boom. Perfect. You guys come on up. We're going to take up a little offering here. Um, <clears throat> so as I said before, uh, all of our counseling services are, are via donation. Um, so that is so when the, um, the single mom um, who's just been left uh, by her husband with four children needs um, mental health, spiritual services, uh, she can get counseling. Uh, that's for the uh, broke college student uh, who doesn't know what they're doing with their life and has made several mistakes and has no um, direction and no money, uh, they can receive services. We also do 
um, some work overseas in Colombia. My wife is from Colombia. I think there's a couple slides. Um, the one of Luz, which is the lady. Yep, that's okay. It's not there. Um, in Colombia, South America, not South Carolina. Um, we have some folks over there where we just do like major benevolence work. Uh, there's an adoption agency there, Fauna. They have or had a house for women who, uh, young girls who didn't want to give their children up for adoption. They could stay in this home. Uh, that's been closed down in the past couple of years, so we're trying to work with them to open that uh, back up. So we have uh, one foot here in the U.S., another in uh, South America. Um, no picture? Okay, cool. There, there's a picture of a lady named Luz. And there's like 50 kids behind her. Uh, and the same way that you would go out on Saturday and mow your yard, she packs food and mattresses and clothes and goes out into these uh, really uh, impoverished communities and just gives people what they need. It's not through an organization. She gets no tax write-offs. She just gets off of work. Her full-time job is finding stunt doubles for movies. Uh, and when she gets off work, um, she goes and does all this benevolence work, and, and we uh, are partnering with her uh, to do that. So thank you guys uh, for giving. Uh, we got a pretty big goal that we're trying to meet, um, but thank you guys for your generosity. Are you guys having a good time so far? Good. Very good. Okay. I think we're ready. Uh, uh, we're very blessed tonight. Uh, I have a friend. His name is Skyler Farley. He's from the Charlotte area. Um, he is the purest form of an evangelist uh, that I've ever met in that he just has um, an open-air preaching on the campus of UNC Charlotte. And he's having hard conversations every day with people who aren't sure about their beliefs, who are sure about their beliefs, who are twisted in their beliefs. Uh, and I'm, I met him a couple years ago through some mutual friends. And... Um, the thing that touches me the most about this friendship is that um, he's a man of integrity. And who you will see tonight uh, speaking to you is the person that he is when he's not in front of you. And that's important. And I don't care how big your name is or how famous you are or how many reverends, apostles, bishops you have in front of your name. Uh, I watch you. And and. and if what I see lines up with the word, then I associate with you as a leader. And if it doesn't, um, I, I don't have any respect for that. So that matters a lot to me. So if you want to go ahead and come on up here, I'm going to hand it off to you. If you guys will honor Skylar as he comes. stuff down real quick. Thank you, Josh, for that warm welcome. I'm excited to be with you guys. Uh, other than when Josh used to invite me out to speak to some of his youth gatherings, have not done a ton in the High Point, kind of Winston-Salem area, but I love the state of North Carolina. I grew up in a military family, moved 10 times before I moved to 
North Carolina, something like 10 times. And I've been here almost 10 years. May will be 10 years. So I get to call this home because I never really got to choose growing up. But this feels like home. I met my wife here, bought a house here. We've had two kids here. So amen to revival in North Carolina. Come on. I believe that there's something in the soil here. And uh, to get to speak into that deposit tonight, I'm grateful. Um, Let me pray for us, and uh, we'll go ahead and jump in. Father, our prayer tonight is very simple, that you would glorify your Son, that the name of Jesus would be magnified and made much of in this place and in every heart tonight, that our hearts would make much of the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. I pray that our hearts would be reminded of the joy of our salvation. Power of the cross, the power of the blood of Jesus, and the power of your spirit to take these words and make them effectual. Would you pick up these words tonight and drive them into the hearts of people? Would you make ready a people to receive your word tonight? To bear a harvest 30, 60, even 100 times greater than what was sown. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, before the resurrection, the cross made little sense to anybody that was observing. Immediately after the cross, the Gospels record that the earth was covered in a literal darkness. However, I want you to imagine standing at the foot of the cross and reflecting on the events that transpired after encountering the risen Lord. I want you to wake up, imagine what it would be like to have your morning devotion at Golgotha after the resurrection. You carry your Bible, you carry your journal, your notebook, your pen, whatever you use in the secret place in your quiet time, and you go and you sit and you look at the cross as the sun is rising. And imagine what it would be like to reflect on the events that had taken place in the days before. The sun of righteousness has risen, and we must observe the cross in the light of his glory. The entire Christian life is meant to be lived in the shadow of the cross and the light of the resurrection. It's been said that the gospel is not just the diving board that we jump off of, it's also the pool that we dive into. It's not just the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to the Z. It's not just the root of the tree, it's the tree that we grow up into. We don't leave the subject. The gospel is the subject. Jesus Christ is the Father's message. He's still speaking Jesus. We can't get bored with this message. I love what Paul Washer, in speaking to a group of ministers, said one time. He said, we must be men who deeply study the gospel. And he says, well, you say to me, I've already done that. He says, you can't have already done that. It's far too big of a topic to have already done that. A thousand eternities will not be enough time to have already done that. This evening, I want to observe the events that led up to the cross and consider what they communicate about our Lord and what they mean for following him. Three points tonight. Number one, Jesus took on the form of a servant. If you have your Bible with you tonight or a device that you use to pull up the Bible, we'll be in John chapter 13. says 
It was just before the Passover festival. And Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Some of you, as Josh already hit on tonight, are afraid that if people really got to know you, they would reject you. You're comfortable going a certain distance in friendships and relationships, but then you put up walls and you begin to box people out because if they got to know you, the real you, they would cease to love you. But having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus loves his own until the end, to the uttermost. He loves them completely. The only one who knows you completely is also the one who loves you unconditionally. Intimacy, to be fully known and to be fully loved. Jesus is the ultimate one that we pursue intimacy with. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In verse 2, it references that the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. There may be others in the room tonight who are dealing with betrayal in your life. Some of you may have been wounded by people who were at one time very close to you. Perhaps you've been hurt by a church that you once worked at or that you were deeply involved with. Some of you have encountered your deepest pain from friends who once sat at your table. The deepest wounds rarely come from strangers, but almost always come from the people who are closest in your life. Here's the crazy thing. Jesus still washed Judas' feet. I'm going to say that again. Knowing that he was about to betray him for 30 pieces of silver, Jesus still washed Judas' feet. I want you to take just a moment and survey your life. Is there anybody or any group of people whose feet you would be unwilling to wash? Come on. That church, that hurt you. That leader who let you down. That family member who drives you crazy. That's caused your deepest scars. The person you're trying to get healing from. I'm not talking about like a ritualistic foot washing in front of the church, I'm talking about the humility to love that person. Is there any person or group of people whose feet you would be unwilling to wash? And if that thought just seems outrageous to you, now I want you to think about the God of the universe washing your feet. Is that thought not far more outrageous? Jesus gave us the ultimate example of what it looks like to love your enemies by washing Judas' feet. Remember that at one time we were all God's enemies, but this is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and that he sent his son 
to die for us while we were still his enemies. Following Jesus may at time require you to wash your enemies' feet. But Judas also illustrates for us that the problem is never a lack of God's love towards his enemies, but the problem is always with our lack of responsiveness to God's love towards us. The problem, I'm going to say that again, is never with a lack of God's love towards his enemies, but always an issue with our ability to receive God's love and to appropriately respond to the kindness of God in repentance and loving him in return. Do you realize that there were actually two men at the table who on that same night were going to betray Jesus? One was already plotting in his heart to betray Jesus, and one was about to swear that he never would. But two men who were both close to Jesus were both going to turn their back on Jesus that night. Some of you in the room, you're in the room tonight, but you may be in a season that some would describe as backslidden. You may be in a place where you know that though your body is still in the room, your back for a long season has been turned to Jesus. The difference is that one continued down the road of destruction because he never turned back and the other one was willing to repent. We're talking about Peter and be restored to his place as a disciple. Some of you have turned your back on Jesus, but the difference is can you turn back? Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Man, he's wounded the third time he asked that question. Lord, you know I love you. Verses 3 and 4. It says... Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Jesus had received all power and authority from the Father. Jesus knew that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he gets up from the table, takes off his outer garment, and wraps a towel around his waist. These verses are packed with theological truths. The one who came from the Father willingly stripped his transcendent beauty and visible glory to take on humanity and become a servant. Just as Jesus takes off his outer garment and puts on a servant's towel around his waist in this passage. The one who fulfills the suffering servant role of Isaiah, the servant songs, is the creator God himself. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This passage in Philippians 2 is a clear expression of high Christology in the New Testament. In other words, it's a clear attestation to the divinity of Jesus. And I felt like this was, I was going to press this one hard tonight for somebody in the room. People are deconstructing just about everything these days. And some, I know that word is packed with meaning, can mean all different types of things, and some people are just trying to get back to the original form of Christianity. 
Hear me loud and clear. If you try to deconstruct the divinity of Jesus, that is called heresy. Bible scholars believe that this passage, this little snippet from Philippians 2, 5 through 11, is one of the earliest Christian hymns. From this passage, it's clear that the early church believed that Jesus was Yahweh incarnate. Who being in very nature God is how it starts, and it ends, and Paul, who's very Old Testament literate, Hebrew Bible literate, is going to place Jesus in Isaiah 45, 23, every knee shall bow, which is clearly a reference to Yahweh. And he's going to put Jesus in the role of Yahweh. So he's going to start being in the very form, God, and he's going to end with every knee bowing to the one that Isaiah 45, 23 clearly expresses as Yahweh. Jesus is the one who stripped, not his divinity, but his outward manifestation of his glory and his transcendent beauty to put on humility to put on our humanity to come through the birth canal and to become the dying savior of the world one bible commentary noted in this passage the facts of jesus being of the very nature of god and yet becoming truly and fully human are unambiguously stated nt wright commented that the weight of the poem rests on the decision of the one who was all along equal with god to become human and to travel the road of obedience to the, the divine saving plan, yes, all the way to the cross. The Nicene Creed states it this way, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made Man, do we believe this? Come on, this is Orthodox Christianity. This is important. Do you know why the doctrine of the Trinity is one of my favorite doctrines to preach on? It's not just theological, like high sound. It's, it's immensely practical. I, I, I'm on the campus, as Josh referenced, frequently having conversations with people of all different world religions or no religion at all, and almost weekly going back and forth with Muslim students who, by the way, can explain the core tenets of their faith way better than most Christians that I know, which means that we need to have sound doctrine so that we can defend the faith. And I never thought in a million years that being on a public secular college campus, I would have to defend the Trinity more than almost any other doctrine and understand why it's not just awkward or clunky, but why it's one of the most beautiful aspects of our faith. And Josh is talking about the Father's love. Let me Take you for a second. You imagine that you're a Muslim student, and I ask you, for a while we're riding together, hey, is God eternal? Has he always existed? Yes. Is he immutable, which means are his attributes fixed? Are they unchanging? Are they stable? Yes. Would you describe Allah as a loving being? Yes, I would. Would you describe love as a relational quality? What do you mean by that? Well, does it require something outside of yourself to exercise love? And usually they start to cede a little bit of ground. They go, well, yeah. Who was Allah loving before he laid the foundations of the earth? And all of a sudden the answer becomes that he had to create or he needed to create in order to exhibit the attribute of love. But now in the Christian doctrine, Jesus 
is begotten eternally, the unique Son of God, forever proceeding from the Father, radiating His glory, never created, means that God the Father has always been the Father. And Christ has always been the Son, and the Holy Spirit has always been proceeding from the Father and the Son. They're a perfect community of love from all of eternity. Therefore, why did God create the world? Why did God create humans? Not because he was bored. Not because he was lonely. Not to run a little experiment, but because he wanted to create imagers to share in the perfect experience of love that had existed within the Trinity throughout all of eternity. And what will heaven be like? Not Disneyland in the sky. It will be stepping into, whoa, that flow of the love from the Father that the Son, like the eternal sponge, has been absorbing throughout all of eternity and radiating back to the Father and you standing in the midst of that exchange as an adopted son or daughter. One of the craziest verses in the Bible, the hardest to believe verses in the Bible, you're probably going to think a grown man in the belly of the fish, a seat, parting. I think it's John 17, 23, where Jesus says that the Father loves you even as he loves Jesus. That's unbelievable. The Father loves you and you and you even as he loves his perfect one and only Son. This is unbelievable. But Tim Keller, in referencing Jonathan Edwards, says in this world we're like beached whales. We're outside the environment that we were meant to live in. We've got to get back in the water. We've got to get back into the environment that we were made to live in. We've got to get back in the place where we can receive the Father's love. But Jesus has come to redeem humanity so you can get back into that right relationship with God. Back to where I was at with the incarnation, the miracle of Jesus becoming a servant by first becoming a human. Some theologians say that the incarnation is the greatest miracle in the Bible. Again, what Jesus is emptying himself of in Philippians 2, 7 is not divinity, but the outward manifestation of his majesty and glory. I love how songwriter uh, Jenny Lee Riddle, and this was made famous by Carrie Job, expresses the majesty of God. Clothed in rainbows of living color, flashes of lightning, rolls of thunder, Blessing and honor, strength and glory, and power be to you, the only one who's king. But the incarnation was the stripping, the taking off of the outer garment of that majesty and that splendor. Another song frames the miracle of the incarnation in these words. He who was before there was light walked across the pages of time. He who made every living thing, he who heard humanity's cry, left his throne to wake as a child. He became like the least of us. What's amazing is not only what Jesus stripped himself of, but also what he put on. He took off his outer garment and wrapped a servant's towel around his waist. C.S. Lewis once said, in the Christian story, God descends and reascends. He He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seedbed of nature he has created, but he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. Jesus, the most powerful being in the entire universe, stripped himself of his divine privileges and used his power to serve others in love. Use his power, the most powerful being in the universe, use his power to serve others 
in love. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Picking up in John 13, verse 6, it says that he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. I want to ask you tonight, are you willing to let Jesus wash your feet? I don't know where you've been. I know very few people in this room. Josh probably knows where you've been a whole lot better than I do. But knowing all the places that you've walked and all the dust you've collected on your feet, are you willing to take your shoes off and let Jesus wash your feet and all the dust and all the dirt of all the places you've been to wash your feet? The gospel makes clear we cannot clean ourselves. Almost every religion says something like this, save yourself. The gospel says you can't save yourself. Therefore, Jesus had to come to save you. We've been saying on campus, I don't even know where we picked this statement up, so I can't rightly quote anybody for saying it, but I heard one of my students say it, quoting somebody else. Now I've been saying it like crazy. I'm going to say it long enough until I don't have to give that setup and it just becomes my own. Nobody gets clean before they get in the shower. Nobody washes themselves before they get in the shower. But we do this all the time with Jesus. Just come to Jesus and let him clean you. This is the promise of the new covenant. I will cleanse you. I will sprinkle you with clean water. I will give you a clean heart. I will destroy all of your idols. I'll take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. I'll give you a new spirit. I'll move you to obey my commands. The gospel is not a religion of try harder, do better. It begins with a posture of being willing to receive what Jesus has done on your behalf. Will you let Jesus wash your feet? Your unwillingness to let Jesus wash your feet will keep you from having any part in him. But taking your shoes off and letting somebody, especially Jesus, begin to wash your feet requires humility and vulnerability. But Jesus has come for this reason. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Number two. So number one, Jesus took on the form of a servant. Number two, Jesus gave himself in self-sacrificial love. This entire scene, the washing of the disciples' feet, is taking place at the Last Supper. Jesus and the disciples are sharing a Passover meal, and Jesus is about to, I want you to get this, Jesus is about to announce a new exodus by revealing himself as the true meaning of Passover. That's what the Passover was. It was a remembrance of the exodus out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, which was wrought by God's hands, and they were to remember for 1,500 years this sacrament has been in place to remember God delivering them out of bondage 
in Egypt. And Jesus, by showing them that he is the fulfillment of the Passover, is announcing there is now a new exodus out of bondage to sin and death, and I'm the one who's going to deliver you. And by the way, I'm also the Passover lamb. The God who delivers and the God who gives himself as the self-sacrificial lamb. There is a new exodus and Jesus wants you out of the place of slavery, out of the place of bondage, out of the place of the fear of death, and walking in liberty. Which is not licensed to sin, which would be going back to the place he brought you out of, but out of the place that you were once held captive to walk in a loving relationship with him within the boundaries of his commandments. God saved the people out of bondage first, took them through the waters of baptism, and then he gave them the law at Sinai. The law was never a means of salvation, but it was how they were to show that they were a set-apart, holy people. How we view our relationship to the commandments of Jesus reveals a lot about what we think about God. Tim Keller once said that antinomianism, which is grace as a license to sin, and legalism, which is where you try to procure salvation through the law, are actually twins from the same womb. And what they share in common is both of them have a wrong view of God. Both believe that God is withholding. So in antinomianism, which is, uses grace as a license to sin, says that God is withholding pleasure from me, so therefore I have to step outside of his good boundaries to enjoy myself and to secure pleasure for myself because following Jesus, will, it's, this is the first prodigal son. This is the prodigal son. And legalism says he's not good and he's not generous and he's not kind, therefore I have to make him like me. And this is the elder son in the prodigal son's story. And both have no idea whose house they're living in. That the father wants to throw them a party. That the father actually loves them and delights in them. Both are working for the father's love. One's running from the father's love and one's working for the father's love. Neither have come to understand what it means to work from the father's love. Matthew 26, 26 through 28 says that while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus gave his body and poured out his blood for the forgiveness of sins. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion is an embodied act and an acted sermon. Communion is an embodied act and an acted sermon. If you've ever partaken of communion, you may not have realized that you were actually preaching a sermon. You were proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. As you were sitting around the Lord's table and lifting up his body and giving God thanks that he sent his one and only son and thanking Jesus for giving his body on the cross, you were making a cosmic statement. 
You were preaching a sermon that the powers and the principalities were very aware of. So while little words may have been spoken at the Lord's table, the statement was clear. God has given his son because he loves the world to redeem fallen humanity, to announce a new exodus. And Jesus has willingly come in loving obedience to the Father to seek and to save the lost. And my salvation is in his blood and nowhere else. By the blood of Jesus and his atoning death on the cross, we have been washed, cleansed, redeemed, bought out of slavery, delivered, and set free. The cross was not defeat, but total victory. I love preaching the cross, and I'm realizing more and more how much I need to preach the cross. When one of the things I love to do on campus when I'm out evangelizing is I see somebody with a cross and just say, man, I love your cross, or hey, I love your cross earrings, whatever. Are you a believer? Man, I don't know what the statistic is, but a lot of times people go, oh, well, kind of. Well, I'm not really sure. I just, can I tell you what the cross means? You ever heard the story of the cross? Just in the last couple of weeks, I had a kid, after I finished like a 60-second basic gospel presentation, says, this is all new to me. I've never heard that. We live in the cultural south. Kids got a cross necklace on. He had never heard the story of the cross. Girl the other day, same thing, big, beautiful cross necklace. Oh, I love your cross. Are you a believer? Oh, well, kind of not really. Sometimes, you know, like whatever her answer was. Oh, God, she got the story of the cross with you. She tells me how it was just like a trinket that was given to her at her birth. She grew up Catholic, and it was just like a hand-me-down. Man, the cross is where the power's at. It was the ultimate demonstration of Christ's self-sacrificial love, which overcame the powers of this world. The cross was and is sufficient. It is the clearest revelation we get of God on this side of eternity. If you want to know what God's heart looks at, like, look at Christ crucified. We'll never understand the depth of the humility and meekness and the extent of that, that level of self-sacrificial love until we stand in his immediate presence. We don't understand the depth of humility because we don't understand the height of his exaltation. We have no sense of how low he's went because we have no idea how high he came from. Ephesians 1 says that he received a name far above every rank and power, authority, and ruler. What, what gap is meant by far above? Isaiah, referring to Jesus' pre-incarnate glory in Isaiah 6, said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. High and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. What is that height of the high that he saw? It tells you about the depth that he went. In the stripping of his outer robe. When he came down. And he assumed the role of the servant Messiah. Isaiah 53. 
By his wounds were healed. His back cut open with a cat of nine tails. His head wearing the crown of thorns. And then his stripped back had a purple robe of mockery put on top of it. And I can only imagine when they ripped that thing off his back and it pulled at those fresh wounds. What is the depth of his humility? It's equal to the height of his exaltation. Far above. He went low. He went lower than any had ever gone before because he came from higher than any has ever sat. To follow Jesus, we must be a people of the cross. We have to be a cruciform people, people shaped by the cross. Paul, at the end of Galatians, in Galatians 6.14, says, May I never boast in anything except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Galatians 6, 17, he says, let nobody bother me anymore, for I bear in my body the marks or the branding of the cross. He was referring to his suffering. He was referring to his wounds. Stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked three times. Cut open with a cat of nine tails on five occasions. Beaten with rods in prison, times without number. Sleepless nights in danger of rivers and robbers in the way of traveling to preach the gospel and eventually to have his head cut off says, I bear in my body the marks of the cross. To follow Jesus, we must remember that we have to be a people of the cross. We come in through the cross and no other way. We can't wiggle around it. We can't climb over it. We can't dig underneath it. We can't dance in front of it. We come in through the cross and then we carry our cross. And we realize that what we'll be carrying at the end of the age is not machine guns or bars of gold or little slips of paper showing how much Bitcoin we've got. We'll be carrying crosses, willing to lay our lives down for the one we love and who gave his all for us. The end time army is carrying crosses. And the name that's on their lips is the only name that saves, Jesus. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, which is gospel proclamation, and they loved not their lives unto death. We've made so many peripheral issues central and made the central thing peripheral. We have made so many Peripheral things, central. And push the cross off to the side. And I think it's time we get back to the stumbling block. And say, this is it. You want to know God? Come to the cross. You want to know what the church has to say about the state of our nation? Let's look at the cross. Because there's only one message and only one name that can save a nation. It's Jesus, and it's his death, burial, and resurrection that brings about salvation. It's time to make the main thing the main thing again. 
Number three, Jesus modeled total surrender in the garden. Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away one more time and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. John's account, real quick, jumping over to John 18, 10 through 11, adds this interesting note. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Here's what I want you to get. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus came to a place in the garden of total surrender. Some of you have been in a wrestling match with God. Do you know how the wrestling match with God ends? Surrender. Do you know how you prevail in prayer? Surrender. Do you know how you secure the blessing? Surrender. Jesus was not going to resist the Father's will, and he was not going to fight to save himself. That's a word for somebody. Jesus was not going to fight to save himself from the hour for which he had come into the world. Jesus had come to the place of total surrender alone. This is another word for somebody, alone in the place of prayer. Doesn't mean that you don't need community. I am all community. It's not either or, it's both and, but you need to have a place where you get alone with God. There are times when God has to get us alone with him and bring us to the point of total surrender. When I first moved to Charlotte in 2013, it was to be a strength and conditioning coach at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And I had basically kind of made a deal with God. I'll maybe start a Bible study when I get there. It was my bargain with him. It's not living in a lot of ways the way that I should have. Two years into this, in 2015, the Lord began to call me into ministry. It was like this burden that wouldn't go away. It kept forcing its way to the front of my mind. I realized that I was using strength and conditioning more and more as a vehicle to talk to people about Jesus. And it just felt like I couldn't look at doing anything else. And right around this time, I was literally on, about to board a flight to go back to Kansas, which is where I went to school, to attend a strength and conditioning conference, which was going to be a big networking opportunity, meet guys from other universities. And right before I get on the plane, I get a call from this guy at a big church I was attending at the time. And he says, hey, a couple people in the office have been throwing your name around. Have you ever thought about doing ministry before? It's like, this is interesting. One, I know who you are. How do you know who I am? And... I say, you know, it's crazy. It's all I think about lately. 
and he tells me about this opportunity. I say, well, I'll think about it. And I just kind of put it in the back of my head. I get on that flight and I realize I think this is the last like real strength and conditioning thing I'm going to do. I just kind of knew that in my heart. I'm there and I'm entertaining the conversation. Like I just, I think something's changing in my life. Well, the interview is kind of this very intense group interview for the weekend. They were going to let this group know how many people made it into this ministry apprenticeship. And I knew that at the end of that weekend, I was going to, if I got the yes, I was going to have to make a decision, which would mean that I was going to leave my career. I'm a type one diabetic, had uh, all my insurance taken care of and, you know, insulin is crazy expensive. And so naturally my parents were concerned about, is this smart? You know, I was going to get a small stipend for doing this ministry thing. And it was going to last about six months and no guarantee of a job on the other side. So it didn't sound super promising. I can understand why my parents were concerned. So I remember on the Sunday morning, I was going to have to give a devotional talk that afternoon. And I just remember calling my parents and said, man, I'm so anxious. I don't know what to do. I'm going to have to make a decision. Will you guys just pray for me? And my mom's here. I love you. This is not a knock against her. They were just being good parents who were concerned. They were offering like, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? And finally I said, I'm getting more stressed out the longer I talk to you guys. I'm sorry, but I got to go. So I get off the phone and they never pray for me. And all of a sudden what I realized God was doing is he was forcing me into a place of being alone with him. He was forcing me into a place of decision. Because what I didn't know was that months later, a lot of crazy stuff was going to unravel in my life. And what I wasn't going to be able to do on that day was rely on anybody else's yes. But I was going to have to have made a yes in my heart before the Lord that would sustain me in that season. So about nine, I I go through the apprenticeship. I get offered a job at this church. And three and a half months into it, literally the week after my birthday, I get let go from this job. I had met my wife just a couple months before this season. And every one of the things that my parents said might happen did happen. And all of a sudden, I'd left this cool job at the university where I was traveling with the team and getting to wear sports gear to the, you know, work every day and work in a weight room. It was awesome. I loved my job. I didn't have a problem with my job. And I thought I was stepping out in faith to say yes to Jesus, and I landed flat on my face. And then I was working, like, jobs I really didn't like, where I was making almost zero money. And I remember saying, what is this? Like, like, what is this thing that you've called me into almost feeling like God had let me down? And he said, when you left, were you leaving for a job or because you wanted to follow me? I said, I want to follow you. And he said, since all this has transpired, have you not had to pray more? Have you not been on your face more? Have you not had to depend on me more? Have you not had to lean in more? Yes, 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 yes. Didn't you get exactly what you asked for? I still married my wife in that season. (laughs) We were so broke. And, And she recalled the other day, we were watching some movie and, you know, she says, remember, always remember that I loved you when all you used to do was lay on the floor and cry. It was so real. That's a real season. I remember when I got a job to come out of that season finally, and it was like the dream. Being afraid that I would lose something of that desperation. That I would lose something of that fire in prayer. That I would lose something of that hunger to be used by God. 
when there were no opportunities in front of me. Famous verse, Romans 8, 28. We all love this verse. God uses, works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. The next verse describes for you what all things together for the good actually looks like. For those he predestined, he called, or those he called, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. God's ultimate destiny for your life is not a job, a certain house, salary, or income in your bank account. It's the conforming of your character into the image of his son. And he is working all things together to that end. Jonathan Edwards, this is a paraphrase because he was a wordy guy. He was known for resolutions. Resolution one was this, I will live for God. Resolution two, if no one else does, I still will. Have you come to that place of resolve in your heart, alone with God, in a garden or in a bedroom, where you've said, I will live for God. And if nobody else does, if the whole church lets me down, if the whole church in America crumbles, and every church and every pastor ends up in scandal, which I pray to God that's not the case, I'll still live for you. I'll still trust you, Jesus. I'll still believe your gospel. I'm going to do it with the church, and I hope that we're walking in character and integrity, and that's not the case. But do you have that resolve in your spirit? I will live for God. Have you come to that place alone with God of total surrender? In the battle of your will versus God's will, have you come to the place of total surrender? The road that ends in joy is the road that's paved with surrender. Jesus is our perfect example because Jesus fully drank the cup. So what's the call? Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The pioneer and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And after he had made atonement, sat down at the right hand of the Father. The worship team wants to come back up. I believe we're going to transition in a moment into a time of communion. I wonder where your heart's at tonight. First, I would ask you, are you in a right relationship with God through the cross of Jesus Christ? I want you to imagine this conversation in the garden between Christ the Son and God the Father. We're not once, but three times in bitter agony, he cries out, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup of bitter suffering pass from me. Cup, still there. Two times, three times. Imagine that you're standing 100 feet from Jesus as he cries out in agony. Sweat falling like drops of blood. And you maintain in your heart, it's nice that that works for Josh and for Skylar, but I've kind of got this other way that I'm going to get right with God. 
I've got this new age spirituality thing that I'm kind of into where I'm just going to put off positive vibes. I'm going to tip the scales of karma in my direction. I'm a nice person. No. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup of suffering pass from me. But not my will, your will be done. And Jesus says to Peter, shall I not drink this cup that the Father has given me to drink? And he drank it to the dregs. He drank it till every last drop was gone. The true agony of the cross was not just what was visible at Calvary. I think we need to talk about the physical pain of the most excruciating way to die, but the real weight of the cross was what we couldn't see that day. It was the total accumulation, the total weight of all human depravity, sin and iniquity, all perversion, all manner of lust and greed and sinfulness placed on his shoulders, the only one who is capable of bearing that weight nailed to the cross. All the blood from all the centuries that had cried out from the ground. Have you seen your sin there on Calvary? Stake to that wooden tree as Jesus hung there naked, exposed before the world? Or do you still have another plan for how you're going to get right with God? Through trying hard and doing better, religion cannot save you. There's only one name given to man by which they may be saved, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. There is only one precious blood, one elixir, that can take that poison out of your heart called sin. There's only one thing that can remove that stain from your shirt, not all the scrubbing in the world, only one thing that can make you clean in the eyes of God. Only one thing that can allow you to approach the judgment seat of Christ with peace and not fear. It's knowing that the one who's qualified to judge you was judged for you. But if you won't receive that free gift, there awaits for you nothing but condemnation. Do you know Jesus? Have you confessed him as Lord? Have you received that gift that he gave to the world at Calvary? the answer to that question is no and you want to know beyond the shadow of a doubt tonight that your name is found written in the Lamb's book of life without any hesitation I want you to stand to your feet right now if you're not in a right relationship with God or you once were but you've turned your back on him and you say tonight I'm coming back I want my name registered in the Lamb's book of life I want you without hesitation to stand to your feet as a public declaration that Jesus is Lord, that there's no other way. Yeah, Jesus says, if any man confesses me before men, I will confess his name before the Father. This is one of my favorite meditations. I love to just picture the day I show up and I hear Jesus speak my name. 
on that day you won't care what other person had their name, your name in their mouth. There's only one voice you're going to want to hear saying your name on that day. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. If you need to rededicate your life to Jesus tonight, you're one who once sat at the table with Jesus. But like Peter or Judas, you've betrayed him, you've walked away. But you're coming back tonight. I want you, without hesitation, to stand to your feet as a public statement, I'm coming back. pray for these in just a moment but as we hit on washing feet if there's something in your heart that you know isn't right towards another person when I ask that question whose feet would you be unwilling to wash? What group of people would you be unwilling to wash their feet? There is a name or a group of people that immediately came to mind. And you want to begin to change your heart towards those people and repent maybe bitterness or contempt or resentment or even hatred that you've harbored in your heart towards those people. I want you to stand to your feet. It's a sign of repentance. Now there may be actions when you leave this room tonight, conversations that may need to be had. The Lord, I believe, will deal with you in that. But this is a precious offering to Him. there's some area of your life where you know the Lord has been asking for surrender. It's been a battle of the wills. He's tugging and you're resisting. And you want the wrestling match to be over and you just want to hand over control to God. If you're ready to do so tonight, I want you to stand to your feet as a sign of surrender and just hand over control. Some area of surrender, some area where you say the wrestling match needs to be over. I, God, I take my hands off of it. Some area of obedience he's asking for in your life. take communion and if you stood for to confess Lord Christ as Lord for the first time and this is the first moment you're coming to Jesus in right relationship I want you to follow this same sequence of prayer there's no magic formula there's no special words you can pray it's your heart turned towards the Lord confess believing 
and what he did for you on the cross, confessing him as Lord, responding rightly to him that saves you. But what all of us need to respond in is pretty similar, so I'm just gonna leave the whole room in one time of prayer, and this will be for you as well. If you're coming to the Lord for the first time, I want you to begin by just telling Jesus that you need him. And I don't need you to repeat words after me, just in your own way, just begin to say, Jesus, I need you. I can't clean myself up. I can't wash myself. I can't make myself presentable to you. I can't earn your blessing. Just begin to confess your sin to him. Maybe it's in that area of the strained relationship or if you're coming to Christ for the first time, it's just saying, I've been away from you my whole life. I've never followed your ways. I've gone astray. Just begin to confess your sin to him. Just begin to tell him the truth. Take some time, whatever the Holy Spirit brings to the surface of your heart right now, just begin to confess before him. Lord, I've elevated things above you. I've made idols out of things in my life. Lord, I've rebelled against you. Lord, I've harbored this or that in my heart. And then begin to turn from confession to repentance, which is where you acknowledge where you were, but now you're turning from that thing to walk in a new direction. Just begin to tell him in your own way, Lord, I turn. Lord, I change my mind. Lord, I'm willing to walk in a new direction. I don't want the old way anymore. just begin to tell him, I believe. I, I believe in who you are as the Son of God sent to take away the sins of the world. I believe that the cross was enough. That all of my punishment was placed on you there so that I could receive mercy what I don't deserve so that I could be set right, so that I could be forgiven. I believe in the cross. I believe in the power of the resurrection. I believe that you didn't stay in the grave, but on the third day you rose and you lived forevermore. Just begin to tell him, I believe the gospel. I believe the good news that I'm saved because of you. Not because of anything I've done, but because of your grace and your loving kindness. 
And then I want you to just begin to confess him as Lord. Just begin to hand over the control center of your life. Say, Jesus, you're king. Jesus, take the keys to my life. Jesus, your Lord, just begin to confess his lordship in your life. Just begin to give him permission to rule and to reign on the throne of your heart. And as we begin to transition to go into a time of communion, I want you to thank him for what he's done and for what it reveals about who he is. Thank him for his nail-scarred hands. Thank him for his pierced feet. him for carrying away your sins as far as the east is from the west thank him for transforming your heart for opening your eyes so that you could see begin to thank him for his everlasting love which wasn't just a feeling that he had towards you it was a total action giving of himself so that you could stand in that eternal exchange of the Father's love. So that you could participate in the new exodus out of slavery and into freedom. Come on, just begin to thank him that you're not a slave anymore. Come on, begin to thank him that the shackles have been let loose. The prison door has flown open. Begin to thank Him for His Spirit. He's filled us with the Holy Spirit. If any man's in Christ, the Spirit of God is in that man. Begin to thank Him for taking residence in your life, for promising to be with you always. for this eternal hope, this secure anchor beyond the veil. Christ Jesus himself who's gone in. Sat down at the right hand of the Father. Bradley wants to come and administer the communion.